The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. This morning we uh, finish up chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel, looking at verses 23 through 38. And I know that uh, you look at those verses and you just overflow with sheer excitement at a list of names that you've never heard of before. Uh, we'll try to, this morning, uh, pull a pull from here some significance that Luke intends as he includes it for us. Uh, but what we're looking at this morning is a genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus. That's what Luke inserts here at the end of, of chapter 3. He, he decides as he writes this, this letter, if you will, that uh, it's important to know Jesus' lineage, that it's important to know his history, that it's important to know his ancestry. So he includes it here uh, in, this, in this gospel. And so because he's included it, because the Holy Spirit inspired him to do that, uh, it's fitting for us to take a little bit of time and sort of look through that and try to understand the significance of it. Why is it included? Why do we need to pay attention to this? Why in our Bible study should we not just breeze over that and say there's a bunch of names, let's get on to the temptation of Jesus, which is the next exciting uh, piece of narrative in the gospel in chapter four. But we would be, we would be a, little, a little crazy to do that because there's an important reason why Luke has included this here and I hope that we'll be able to see that this morning. Now, I don't know, are, are there any of you who have gotten into this uh, whole concept of, of searching out your ancestry or your, your uh, family tree? Come on, just raise your hand if you've done any, any sort of look at your ancestry, your family tree, try to search back to see who you can find that related to. Okay, well, some of you have done that and some of you are too embarrassed to admit that you've done that, but that's all right, you don't have to, you don't have to admit it. There's nothing shameful about searching your ancestry. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are doing that these days. It's, it's a bit of a fad. I looked at uh, some statistics from Ancestry.com, one of the largest uh, websites that, that aids people in doing this. And, and I found that Ancestry.com, uh, some very interesting statistics, $1 billion in revenue every, every year. So somebody's looking up their family tree. Uh, 18 million people in their DNA network. So a lot of folks are not just looking, but they're also submitting bits of, of themselves, if you will. Uh, to, to get some DNA records and to have it in the network. Uh, over 27 billion records online of people at Ancestry.com. 27 billion, that's a lot of people, an awful lot of people. Uh, every month, over a billion searches on Ancestry.com and 3 million paying subscribers. That's a lot of people. Uh, somebody came up with a good business a few years ago and is profiting from that. But it does tell you at least that there are a number of people who are willing to not only pay money but give bits of their DNA to sort out who they are and where they've come from and who they might have been related to at some point in the past. Which I find it relatively interesting because as a culture, we don't necessarily value ancestry and heritage as much, at least in modern America, as other cultures around the world and certainly as some other cultures historically speaking. I remember very vividly when I was in Bahrain, I was talking to a friend in, uh, in my, little, uh, my little room one night, and he said something to me that, that just seemed rather random, uh, but it definitely made me stop in my tracks and, and think for a minute. He said, he said, did you ever think about the fact that all of us are just two generations away 
from being completely forgotten. I said, wait a minute. I'm not sure that's true. And he said, no, really, think about it. All of us are mostly just two generations away from being completely forgotten. Now, I didn't want to think of my life in those terms, so I pushed back a little bit, but he began to ask me questions. He said, well, how many, how many pictures do you have up in your house of people more than two generations back in your family tree? Well, the answer in my house is none. How often do you talk about people that are ancestors of yours that are more than two generations back? Well, very rarely. He said, you see my point? Really, we live a life and our lives end and we're remembered for a little while. Maybe if we have children, our children remember us, the people that we lived with, the people that we went to church with, the people that we served in the military with, the people that we worked with, the people that we associated with in life have fond memories of us, but eventually they die. And eventually our children grow up and, and they die and they may pass on bits of information about us to their children. And if we are, are blessed to live long enough to interact with our grandchildren, our grandchildren have good memories maybe of, of interacting with us. But beyond that, we quite largely go forgotten. I, uh, I didn't enjoy that conversation so much and uh, I remember saying to him, how about come back when you can uh, encourage me again like that? And... Um, I didn't like to think of my life in those terms. But, but in, in some ways, it is true. Our, the Bible makes that clear. It says our, our life is, is like a vapor, right? We're here for a moment, and then in the big scheme of things, we're gone. Our lives here have significance for a moment, but God has made us with an eternal soul, and we live forever. And that's why eternity matters more in many ways. But in spite of that, I mean, there are some cultures that worship their ancestors. There are some cultures that, that give great attention to knowing ancestors many, many generations back. Ours is not so much that way, but there is a resurgence of people wanting to understand who at least their ancestors are. And I, uh, I ran across a site that, that sort of laid out some of the reasons, the top reasons that people indicate that they start searching out their, their, uh, their genealogy. And here were some of the top reasons. They, they, one of them was uh, they want to validate family stories. They want to determine if, if stories about their ancestors are actually true, the ones that they've heard. Probably the most common one is this. They're, they're looking for famous people. They want to find out if they're related to somebody famous. Come on, be honest. Don't you want to do that? Isn't that some, if you've ever looked up your, your genealogy, isn't it like you're hopeful that there's somebody really important back there that you can say, man, I'm Abraham Lincoln's whatever. Or I'm related to some so-and-so, some great hero somewhere. A lot of people are just looking for that sort of thing. Some people are tracing medical conditions. It's important to know if there are things that are passed down um, that are hereditary. So that would be a, a, certainly a, an important reason to, to trace back some genealogy. Uh, some people do it to trace land ownership or to, to, to identify a picture in a family portrait um, to, uh, to uh, uh, find some sense of community history or to settle, I thought this was interesting, to settle ownership of an heirloom. And to go back and make sure that we're the ones that have the right to have that heirloom. Lots of different reasons why people would search out their ancestry. But, but, but largely in our culture, it's more of a hobby and not so much a necessity. And because of that, we often lose sight of the importance of this. And we lose sight of the fact that in many other cultures, genealogies hold a, a much higher priority and a much higher level of significance uh, in the culture at large. And that was certainly the case in first century Israel. Uh, ancestry mattered an awful lot. 
If you were to sort of rewind back to the Old Testament and you remember uh, God uh, raising up the nation of Israel through, under Abraham and under Moses and then into the promised land with Joshua, and you remember they d- divided up the promised land, and how did they sort out who got what land? Well, they divided it by tribe. Each tribe had a certain portion of land. And and then throughout the history that followed that, the the descendants of that tribe had some level of rights of inheritance to that land. And so it was important to know who your ancestors were uh, because potentially it was at least in some ways uh, connected to to property rights. It was also connected to things like taxation. And so we see Mary and Joseph in the New Testament going back to Bethlehem. For what reason? To be taxed, and why were they going to Bethlehem to be taxed? Couldn't they just go to the IRS office down the street? Well, they can't do that, right? You had to go to the place where your ancestors were born, and you were tied there by ancestry. And for Mary and Joseph, that was Bethlehem. Those are among a few of the other reasons why this was important uh, back in the first century. We could go on and on about that, but I don't want to this morning. I just simply want to, to state that ancestries were really important and genealogies were really important, far more important than they largely are today. And Luke has a very specific reason why he brings it up here in his gospel and a very specific reason why he wants uh, you and I to, to look through this thing and to think about it for a few minutes. And it goes back to really chapter 1 of Luke's gospel. Now I know that you have been tracking word by word from chapter 1 verse 1 and you've memorized all that I've said about Luke's gospel to this point. But we're going to just humor some folks who weren't here when we did chapter 1, right? And we're going to go back to verses 3 and 4 and we're going to remind ourselves why Luke is writing the book of Luke. He's writing the book of Luke. He tells us in verses 3 and 4 very specifically that he's writing it uh, to a man named Theophilus, who he calls the most excellent Theophilus, and he's writing it specifically for this purpose. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Now, Theophilus was a a Gentile believer, uh, probably someone that was wealthy and had some social standing, and he was someone who had heard the gospel and someone who had at least initially believed it, but was struggling with doubts about his faith. He was he was waffling a bit and his faith in Christ, and he was sort of in that, in that doubting period, and he's, he's sort of researching this again and thinking through it again. And so Luke, uh, a faithful friend, is, is, is doing some research, and he's writing this book in order to help shore up his friend Theophilus and his faith, and in order to help him gain some certainty in the midst of his doubts, in order to sort of anchor his faith in the certainty of the gospel, and to show him that faith in Christ is actually rational and it's reasonable. And so that's why he's writing the book of Luke. Faith in Christ is faith for sure, but it's not blind faith. It's not faith without evidence. And so Luke is writing to sort of show Theophilus once again evidence for the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that faith in him is the wisest, most rational thing that any human being could ever do. And so Luke includes here a genealogy as a part of that evidence. Luke is building his case for, the, for, for Jesus being the Messiah, the king, the king who's come to save humanity from their sin. And, and the, the genealogy here is a part of, of building, building up or showing Jesus' credentials to rule. Now, in proximity to this text, we just looked at the, the baptism of Jesus prior to that. 
and the genealogy sort of follows right on its heels. And so together, they kind of both are, are, are illustrating Jesus' credentials. On the one hand, the baptism of Jesus is showing his sort of divine credentials to be the King of Kings and the Messiah, where we have the, the voice of the Father from heaven and the, the Holy Spirit descending uh, in, like a dove. And we have this sort of divine coronation of Jesus as the King, establishing that, that the, the divine authority to rule. And right after that, he includes this genealogy, and he begins to tell us that Jesus is the—I mean, that uh, that Jesus is the son of this person, the son of that person, the son of that person—and traces it all the way back up. And he shows us here that not only has Jesus got divine credentials to rule, but he has human credentials as well. That he meets all the human qualifications to be the Messiah. And he's going to follow that up with, with a narrative about Jesus going into the, to the, uh, to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And, and so we're going to have the divine credentials to rule at his baptism. We're going to have the human credentials here. And then we're going to immediately see his power on display as a confirmation that he is who he says he is. Now, let me give you two quick notes about first century genealogies. And did I just give these to you so that when you look into this later, you'll have them? Uh, genealogies in the first century did not need to be exhaustive. What I mean by that was when a genealogy was written, it didn't necessarily include every single generation. And it wasn't necessary to include that. That was sort of a, a normal custom of the time to not include every single generation. Uh, you needed to include enough generations to be able to track it clearly, uh, the line, but you didn't have to include every single person. And this is going to be true in Jesus' genealogy as well. There are some generations that are skipped, some people who are not mentioned. Uh, and that would have been true of just about any genealogy in Jesus' day in the first century. Another thing, just an interpretive piece, when you see in your New Testament, in, in English, the phrase, the son of, uh, think in terms of the descendant of. It doesn't necessarily have to be the direct son. It could be uh, 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 that somebody is, is the grandfather and not a parent, but they're still referred to as the son of. So sometimes when we use the language son of, we think in our language immediately that's the direct descendant immediately after you. But when we see this in first century genealogies, son of often means quite just simply descendant of and not necessarily one generation's son. So I tell you that in case you want to dig into the, to this a little deeper later on. What I want to do this morning is just give you some highlights from this genealogy. We're not going to look at everybody in the list, and that's because you don't have the time for that, right? You don't want to go through all these names. But many of these names we don't know anything about. We know nothing about other than their names are listed here in the genealogy. There are some that we know a lot about, a few that we know a lot about, some that are very important uh, for various reasons that I'll try to highlight this morning. So we'll kind of go at it that way. Uh, now, he begins in verse 23 by saying this, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now he gives us a time marker. Luke has been good about that. He's a good historian. He's given us a time marker. He's telling us Jesus' public ministry begins when he's about 30 years old. It's the time that he was baptized, and that's when his public ministry begins. It was also a, a common time that priests began service in the temple and things of that nature, so it correlated with some other cultural pieces. But here we're told that this is the age at which Jesus began his ministry, about 30 years old. And then he goes on to, to start into this genealogy. And he tells us the first thing, that Jesus is the son of someone called Joseph. He's the son of Joseph. Now, before we dig too far into Joseph, we need to, 
to do a, a moment to compare and contrast. Because if you read your New Testament much, you know that Luke isn't the only one that includes a genealogy for Jesus. Who else includes a genealogy? Do you remember? Matthew does. Somebody said Matthew. They get the golden cookie award or something this morning. Matthew includes, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. But if you were to take Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy and compare them, you're going to find significant differences between the two. And so we need to, before we dig into Luke's uh, genealogy, sort of account for that. How do we make sense of the fact that Luke gives us one list of names as a genealogy and Matthew gives us a different list of names? There's some overlap uh, between the two. But there are a, quite, quite a number of names that are, that are significantly different. So let's compare these two things for just a few minutes. Uh, and, and, and let me start by saying this. Matthew and Luke are writing to do two completely different kinds of audiences. Matthew is writing to a largely Jewish audience. And Luke is, is writing to a largely Gentile audience. And so when you're writing, you're going to write in the most persuasive way to the audience to which you're speaking or you're writing. Uh, Matthew is writing to, again, to a Jewish audience. And so to a Jewish audience, David is going to be a very important figure because every, every first century Jew knew that the Messiah was to sit on David's throne. In order to be Messiah, you had to come from the line of David, so it was very, very important. They also knew that he had to come from the line of Abraham. You had to be able to trace your lineage back to Abraham because, after all, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation, and to be king of the Jews, you had to be Jewish. And so Abraham and David are, are titans, if you will, in the world of Judaism in the first century. And so Matthew, speaking to Jews, is concerned that people understand that Jesus is a descendant of both David and Abraham. So that's where Matthew traces his genealogy, and he stops it at Abraham because nothing further is needed once you've traced it to Abraham. Luke, on the other hand, has a Gentile audience. And, and, and these are people who are not children of Abraham. These are people who are not part of the covenant. They are not part of the chosen. And so they need to understand why is Jesus significant to them. If they're not descendants of Abraham, why does Jesus matter? If they're not descendants of David, why should they care who Jesus is? And so Luke's genealogy is aimed directly at this particular issue. So there are some differences in the audience. There's differences in location. Matthew includes this at the beginning of his gospel, largely chronologically. Luke includes it here in chapter 3 as a part of the evidence that he's building up to show Jesus' divine credentials to be the Messiah. And so uh, there's a little difference there in the location for a purpose. Um, the breadth and the order is a little different as well. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, Matthew stops at Abraham. Uh, Luke goes all the way back through Adam to God himself and they go in opposite order so Matthew starts with Abraham and he goes all the way to Jesus Luke starts with Jesus and he goes backwards to Abraham I mean to Adam and then to God ultimately and then again we're going to see different names particularly between Jesus and David the names are very different um, and most notably we're going to find that there are two different sons of David's that, that these lines are traced. So in Matthew's genealogy, we, we've tracked back to David through Solomon, his son. And in Luke's genealogy, we track back to David through his son, Nathan, through a different child. Both legitimate ways to get to Nathan. I mean, to David, right? But just two different roadways. And we're going to also find uh, that's important two different grandfathers of Jesus that are, we need to make some sense of. 
in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' grandfather is a man called Jacob. In Luke's gospel, Jesus' grandfather is a man called Haley. So we need to account for these differences. How do we do that? Well, scholars have debated this for a number of years. And, and, uh, and you can uh, go down on a, on a rabbit hole that will take you uh, many, many days of, of, of reading. And you'll come out on the other end uh, with, a whole, a whole, with not much more clarity. Let's just put it that way. I'm going to summarize it for you. There are really two main ways of approaching this and understanding these differences and how do we account for them. And I think one of them is far more persuasive than the other. The first way of addressing that is there are those who argue that both genealogies are actually from Joseph's side of the family. Um, the difference is that along the way, there were one of two things, sometimes depending on who's writing, both. There were either adoptions that interrupted the line and gave us a difference of, of roadways to take, or there were examples of leveret marriage. Now, I don't want to spend time on that, but in the Old Testament, leveret marriage simply meant if, you're, if a man was married to a woman and the man died, that one of his near relatives could then take her as their wife and, and have children with her to continue the brother's line. Does that make sense? We practice nothing like that today, right? Um, and, and, uh, and all God's people say amen. But that is how it worked. It's how it worked then, leveret marriage. So there are, in a, in a genealogy that goes back this far, it's very reasonable to conclude that this happened on some occasions where uh, a man died and a, and a brother or a near relative marries in and continues his line. And, and at that point, you could trace it back either direction. Uh, so those are reasonable explanations, but I don't see any clear evidence that that specifically has taken place. It's a conjecture. The other way of approaching this that seems, at least to my sensibility, to make more sense is to understand that what's happening here is Matthew and Luke are tracing Jesus' genealogy on different sides of the family. That one of them, specifically, uh, 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 Matthew, is tracing Joseph's family history. He's going back that way, and Luke is going back through Mary's side of the family. Um, I'll try to unfold why I think that makes sense. Again, we've talked about they have two different goals in mind. But, but, but what Matthew is trying to establish in his gospel is he's trying to establish Jesus' legal genealogy. And a legal genealogy went through the Father always. If you were trying to figure out who land belonged to or who an inheritance belonged to, it always tracked legally through the Father. It didn't matter whether a child was natural born or adopted or how they got into the family. It always went through the Father's line to determine legal legal matters or legal qualifications. It was always traced that way. And so it, to, to determine someone's sort of legal inheritance or their legal standing, you always trace through the Father's side. And Matthew is, in, is specifically trying to establish Jesus' legal right to be the Messiah. And so he traces back through Joseph's father, Jacob, and on up. And he gets ultimately to David through Solomon that way. Luke isn't so much interested in the legal genealogy. What Luke is giving us here is Jesus' genealogy by blood. Now, his genealogy by blood through Mary. He's showing us that Jesus is the rightful heir, not necessarily legally, but by blood. That by blood, he is actually related to David, to Abraham, and ultimately up to Adam. Now, we know this is important to Luke because he's already established for us and taken great care to make sure we understand that Jesus' birth wasn't normal, that it was a, a miraculous birth by a, a virginal conception of Mary, that, that, that there was no man involved in his conception, that there was no man whose blood, if you will, contributed to Jesus' DNA. 
If you're going to trace Jesus' blood, you have to trace it through Mary. And that's specifically, I believe, what Luke is doing here. And so he goes through Mary's father, Haley, to get back to David rather than Jake, Joseph's father, Jacob. And we see that sort of in the beginning. I think Luke gives us a good hint here right at the very beginning because he tells us that Jesus was the son of Joseph. But he doesn't just say he's the son of Joseph. He says something else. He says, in your Bible, it's probably in parentheses. What does it say? As was supposed. As was supposed. Well, why does Luke tell us that? Why doesn't he just say he's the son of Joseph? He says he's the son of Joseph as was supposed, because the general population of the day would have largely just supposed that, that, that Joseph was Jesus' biological father. But Luke has already made clear that that's not the case. And although some people might suppose that Jesus, or that Joseph is, is Jesus' father by blood, he's not. His bloodline runs through Mary. And Haley is the nearest male blood relative on that side of the family. So instead of saying he's the son of Mary, which would have been inappropriate largely for a, a, a proper genealogy. Now, if we were to look at Luke, he, he, he lists some women in his genealogy. But, but Matthew has a very specific purpose for doing that. In a proper genealogy, he wouldn't do that. And so Luke here, instead of saying the son of Mary, he says the son of Joseph. And he gives us this qualifier, as was supposed to help us understand that he's not tracing back through Joseph's lineage. People might suppose that, but that's not where the bloodline goes. It goes through Mary's side of the family. He's a blood descendant through Mary to David. And you say, well, who cares? I'm glad you asked that question. Who cares? Who cares whether it was this way or that way? Who cares about Jesus' genealogy being back this way or the other? It's, it's really, I think, has some significant implication in, in this regard. When we take the two genealogies together, we have Matthew showing that Jesus is a blood descendant of David, legally. And we have, uh, through, through, through Joseph, and we have Luke showing us, I got that backward. We have Luke showing us that Jesus is a blood descendant of David through Mary, and we have Matthew showing us that he's a legal descendant of David through Joseph's line. In either case, no matter how you trace it, Jesus is the son of David. There's no question about it. Both sides of the family take you to the same location. And there's no one who can argue that this man does not have a right to sit on David's throne by his heredity. And you know that Jesus, from the very beginning of his ministry, had opponents. He, he infuriated the religious leaders early on and they were doing everything they could to discredit him, you know that if there was some way to find a, a gap in his ancestry that would disqualify him for being the Messiah, that would have been immediately tossed out there at multiple points. But yet we don't have any evidence that that was ever really the case. So Jesus is the son of Joseph, as was supposed. What that tells us is that Luke is tracking through Mary's line by blood. Verse 31 tells us something else, that, that he was the son of Malia, the son of Menah, the son of 
Mattathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Now, every Jewish person in the first century knew that the Messiah had to come through David's line. It had to be done. The Old Testament prophets made that abundantly clear. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David, and he said these very words, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The throne of David was to be established forever. Isaiah in chapter 9 verse 7 includes this. He says this, Of the increase of his government, speaking of the coming Messiah, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom is where he's going to be. So God promised David that he's going to have a kingdom that's going to last forever. Isaiah lets us know that there's going to be a seed of David who's going to sit on that throne. It's going to be the Messiah who's going to rule over David's kingdom. In Jeremiah chapter 23, the same thing, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. Everybody knew that the Messiah was going to be a king and that he was going to come through the line of David. And their expectation was that he was going to show up and that he was going to lead Israel to military victory and he was going to restore Israel to her former glory. That was the full expectation. They knew that he was going to come through David. They just didn't know when he was going to show up. But Luke has already been making the case for us that Jesus is this king that he is the king that Isaiah prophesied, that he is the king that Jeremiah prophesied, that he is the king that God promised David would eventually rule with an eternal rule on his throne. Luke has been making this case from the very beginning. In, the, in verse 31 of chapter 1, one of the early things Luke told us was about an angel visiting Mary. And, he, and, and the angel says this, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. He'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, whom? David. David. Luke has already told us, the angel told Mary, this is who your son's going to be. He's the one that's going to rule on David's throne. A few verses down in chapter 1, we see Jesus in the hands of Zechariah, this priest at the temple, who offers a blessing to the Lord. And he says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and redeemed his people and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So we, Mary's been informed that this is who Jesus is. He's the, the son of David. And now Zechariah has told us by Luke's pen that this is going to be the son of David, the king that's coming. And now he gives us a genealogy that traces back physically to David to show us again that Jesus Christ is the son of David. He is the Messiah who is to come. He is the king who's coming to rule with an eternal kingdom. And this was just a truth that marked Jesus' ministry all, all throughout his ministry. In fact, today is Palm Sunday. David read for us the text earlier uh, that, that recorded for us the narrative of what took place on Palm Sunday. Jesus returning to Jerusalem for the very last time, ultimately going to be arrested and crucified, buried. But as he enters Jerusalem on the donkey, the people are crying out and they're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. King of Israel. 
It is, of course, this very claim of Jesus that made him a threat to everybody else in power, right? You go about claiming that you're a king that's going to rule on, a, on an eternal throne and every other potentate in the world is going to come shooting for you, right? And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. We see this at the beginning of his life. You remember at the very beginning of his life, Matthew records for us uh, the, these magi who come and they say, where is he who's been born, what? King of the Jews. Where's the king that's been born? For we saw his star and we've come to worship him. And Herod, a petty potentate, heard this and he was troubled he was more than troubled he set out to kill him slaughtered every baby under the age of two in an effort to kill him fast forward to the end of Jesus life near the end and he's standing before another petty ruler Pontius Pilate and they're having conversation and what does the conversation center around when Jesus is talking to Pilate and Pilate is, is sort of contemplating what is he going to do with Jesus well, John tells us in chapter, 30, chapter 18, verse 33, he says, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him this, are you the king of the Jews? That's the question on his mind. Are you the king, the king of the Jews? A little further down, Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Yes, I'm a king, but a different kind of king. And the riotous crowds are screaming for Barabbas and screaming for Jesus to be killed. Why is there so much hostility toward the idea that Jesus is the king who's come to rule? Why is that notion generated so much hatred and vitriol in the hearts of people in Jesus' day? And why does that concept generate so much hatred and vitriol and the hearts of people in our day? I think the answer to that is very simple. Because if he is who he said he is, if he is who Luke has described him to be, the Messiah who's come to rule with an eternal kingdom, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, if that's in fact who he is, then the implication of that is every human being must bow before him and submit our lives to him or be judged eternally. And for men who like to rule their own lives, that is a repulsive thought. To have to bow before someone else. To have to live by somebody else's rules. To let somebody else have control over my life. And so people would rather kill him than submit to him. It's true today as well. You don't have to look hard. You don't have to look far to see that kind of anger and vitriol bubbling under the surface of our own culture. What is the, the source of it? The source of it is if Jesus is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords, then, then the, the only rational thing to do is to confess your sin, repent of it, and bow before him, submitting your life to him as King of your life. That's the heart of the gospel, and it cuts humanity into two groups, those who are willing and those who are not. Those who will bow and those who say stubbornly, no way, I'm running my own life. I'm my own king. But Luke wants Theophilus to understand that's a foolish choice. 
because all the evidence says that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Messiah. And he goes on to say he's the son of Abraham in verse 34, the son of Abraham. Now, Matthew deals with this in his genealogy really at large, and so I'm not going to deal with it very much today because I would like to move on. But suffice it to say he mentions Abraham because it's important for the Messiah to come from the line of Abraham as a Jewish descendant. You can write Galatians 3.16 in the margin of your notes if you're taking notes and go back and, and you can see how Paul uh, uh, connects Jesus to the promises to Ab- of Abraham. But the point here is Luke is going to mention Abraham and he's going to point out that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham by blood just to show that he is a legitimate son of Abraham. He's a legitimate Jew and a legitimate person to claim the right of David's throne all the way through Abraham. But that's not enough for Luke. It's not enough to show that Jesus is a son of David and that he's a son of Abraham because, again, he's writing to Theophilus, a Gentile. And so Luke goes all the way back. He blows right past Abraham, and he continues right on with his genealogies. And he takes it all the way to verse 38, where he declares that he's the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of Adam. Why does he go all the way back to Adam? Here's the answer. He goes all the way back to Adam because he wants to show Theophilus that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the Jews over all humanity. He's not just a Jewish king. He hasn't just come to redeem Israel. He has come, in fact, to redeem all who will place their faith and trust in him who descend from Adam. And by the way, if you want to know who descends from Adam, that would be everybody. Right? Everybody. If you want to show that Jesus is the, the, the one who's come to redeem all of humanity, you take him to, Ab- to Adam, because we all trace our lines back to Adam. I don't know how far you've gone on Ancestry.com, but if you had the means and you could go all the way back to the first man, you would end up at Adam. If you don't, something is way wrong. I'd like to understand how you got there. He's wanting to show here to Theophilus and to this Gentile audience that Jesus has come not only to deliver Israel, but he's come to deliver people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. The Old Testament prophet Daniel said this was going to be the case. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, listen to what Daniel, or you can read what Daniel said. Or God said through Daniel, he said this, and to him, speaking of the coming Messiah, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. God had always intended for Israel to be his chosen people, to be a light to the world, to draw people of every nation, tribe, and tongue to the glory of the Father. But Israel, we know because we've read our Old Testament, became puffed up with pride and abandoned that mission pretty early on. And by the time we get to Luke's day, that mission is completely lost on Israel. Israel is now puffed up in pride, extremely infused with racial prejudice against anyone who is not Jewish, not at all seeing themselves as a light to the Gentiles, but looking down on the Gentiles as pigs and dogs, as filth. But Luke hasn't lost that message. And here in his genealogy, he shows Theophilus that Jesus is the son of Adam. Well, who's Adam? Adam was a unique creation of God. He was, he was the first human son of God, if you will. God made him directly with no mother, no father. Did he have a belly button? I don't know. Why would you ask such a thing? 
God made him. I don't know. But he enjoyed unhindered access to God. Adam did. He enjoyed perfect communion with God. You can read about it in the early part of Genesis. But tragically, that didn't last, did it? It didn't last because Adam rebelled and Adam sinned. And Genesis chapter 3 records what we refer to as the fall, where we see in, in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve had one rule that they had to obey, right? What is that? God puts them in, this, in the garden. It's all yours. You have dominion over the place. Just one thing. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you'll die. Adam, if you disobey this rule, death's going to come. But Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And sin entered the human experience through them. And the results were pretty remarkable. That unhindered, unhindered access that Adam had had to God is removed. He's expelled from the garden. And a barrier is placed between him and, and God because of his sin. That perfect communion that he had with God is lost because his sin now separates him from a holy God. Sin now corrupts all of human experience. And, and it's described there. God explains it to him. Everything that you experience in life, Adam, is now corrupted because of your sin. Childbirth, the work that you do with your hands, everything is corrupted and going to be more difficult and painful now because of your rebellion. But most significantly, Adam, death has come. You've sinned. And sin has entered humanity through you. And now death and condemnation come into the picture. But even then, even then, God gave Adam a ray of hope, didn't he? In verse 15 of chapter 3, in talking to Adam and Eve and the serpent about the consequences of what they'd done, he's speaking to the serpent. God said this, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's the he? he is the coming Messiah even here at the beginning when sin first enters humanity and death and condemnation come God immediately speaks of the future he who's going to come and deal with that problem there I was Anderson College the same class I told you about last week Dr. Robert Burke that tall nose three shades redder than the rest of his face we get to chapter 3 of Genesis. Clearly, I'm a little thick and didn't learn my lesson in chapter 1 because he asked the class about this verse as well. And uh, I raised my hand and I said, well, this is an early prophecy of the, of the Messiah, Jesus, who was ultimately going to die on the cross and crush Satan's head. And I got the same answer. I was hoping somebody would say that. And he went on to explain how stupid that idea was. He didn't say it that way. He liked to always say, but if we take the study of the Bible seriously. Don't you love that? Which is another way of saying, you clearly don't, idiot. But that's what he said. And he went on to explain what this verse was about. Now, mind you, this, this man uh, has more degrees than a thermometer. And he's well-published. But he went on to explain with confidence to our class that what this verse, Genesis 3.15, is really about, it's, it's really just an ancient author's way to explain why people are uncomfortable around snakes. 
He said, if I were to come into this classroom and bring a, a large snake with me, you would all be very uncomfortable. To which I agreed, yes, we would be very uncomfortable. But that doesn't have anything to do with Genesis 3.15. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's God saying right at the moment when sin and death enters humanity's experience that I'm going to deal with this problem. What Adam has done, I'm going to bring another Adam who's going to undo. What Adam has lost, it's going to be redeemed and restored by a second Adam to come. Paul makes that connection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he says that in Adam all have sinned but in Christ all can live. And so in tracing Jesus' lineage back to Adam, what, what, what Luke is doing is he is showing to Theophilus and to Gentiles that, look, here's what happened. All of creation, all of humanity has, has this mark of sin and death and condemnation and is separated from God because of what Adam did and what we've inherited through him and what we've willingly participated in on our own. But Jesus has come, and he is a son of Adam who's come to undo what Adam did, to fix what Adam broke to redeem what Adam lost, to save every son and every daughter of Adam who repent and trust in him. He came to die in the place of sinners, to crush the head of Satan, to pay the price for our sin so that by placing our faith in him, we can have eternal life. Well, our, our time is up just say a couple more just sort of brief things that I think are self-explanatory. Luke takes one more step and he goes beyond Adam and he says Jesus is, he traces him back to the Son of God. The Son of God. That he is the Son of God in a deity sort of a way but also he is a Son of God from a humanity standpoint. This human line can be traced back to God if you will. Because God is the author and the creator of all human life. Despite what's taught in our culture, we are not just the result of random, impersonal forces. Every human being, every man, every woman is a son and a daughter of God in the sense that you are a, a unique creation of God. None is an accident in the cosmos. We're created with beauty and with purpose. And there's only one race of people on the earth, the human race, all born of God, all tracing our heritage back through Adam to him. It's why racism is such a curse and a scourge on our land. To claim that any race is superior to the next if we're judging race simply by skin color or some other foolish measure, we're way off base or way outside the lines of anything that God would ordain or approve. We're all the human race. And if you want to understand why you have significance as a human being, you don't need to trace your genealogy back to some famous person who did something heroic to anchor your, your value as a person. If you want to understand your value as a person, trace your, your genealogy all the way back to God, the one who made you, because he's the one who gives you value and purpose. Because he made you, and he loves you, and he sent his only begotten son to redeem your soul. You have value, all of us, because we are sons of God. Let me just give you a quick couple of points here at the end. Things I think we can deduce from this lineage or this genealogy. 
When I look at that list, one thing I notice is that every person on that list is a sinner. Did you notice that? Everyone on that list is a sinner. Some maybe more, uh, more, uh, some are better at that than others. Let's just say it that way. But all are sinners. There's not a single perfect human being along the genealogy of Christ. Not a single one. Every one of them is flawed. Every one of them got things right and every one of them got some things wrong. But in, fa- in spite of the fact that many of them sinned and sinned horribly, God used them in very, very significant ways. In fact, if it wasn't for any of those, there's no Messiah. Jesus uses very flawed people. He uses very flawed people who get things wrong a lot. The kingdom of Jesus is not a kingdom of perfect people. It's a kingdom of imperfect people who understand their imperfections and look to Christ to make whole what's wrong. The other thing I notice is they're all dead. You say, great, that's great insight, Pastor, great. Could have figured that one out. But it does remind me of this, that all of our lives are a vapor, and we're here for a little while. We're here for just a little while. One day I'm going to die. One day you're going to die. And we're just going to become a name in a genealogy somewhere. Most of the names in this genealogy, we don't know anything about them other than their name. A name that says that somebody with that name lived and died and had children with another name. At some point, whether my friend in Bahrain about the two generations is true or not, at some point our lives end. We don't live forever. And the question really remains, are we ready for that day? The only way to be ready for that day is to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to have bowed before the King of Kings, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of Adam. And then I want to say this last thing. One thing that, that, that sort of jumps off to me at this is this. The significance of our lives isn't always understood in real time. The significance of our lives isn't always understood in real time. That is to say that we don't always fully understand what God is doing in our lives and through our lives when it's happening. Some of these folks on this list we don't know anything about. They clearly didn't do anything remarkable or noteworthy in real time that would have warranted them being recorded in history for that. We just have their name. And I suspect that probably most of them had no idea that God was bringing the Messiah who would save the world through them when they were living. But that's a very significant thing. Every one of those people in that line is important because to get from David to Jesus, there's got to be the son of the son of the son of the son of the son of. And every one of those sons is important. They were instrumental in God redeeming humanity. But I suspected that most of them probably had no sense of that when they were living. They probably lived life like you and me, going through life wondering, am I really making a difference here? Is there really any impact that's going on through my life? You ever felt like that? Have you ever wondered, you know, does my life matter? Am I doing anything that's going to last beyond me? Well, maybe. But I'd like for you to consider the possibility that God may be doing something really remarkable through your life that you have no sense of right now in real time. God's ways are bigger than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. If you don't think you're making a big splash in the world, don't be discouraged. Obey the Lord, follow Christ, 
and let him do with you what he wants to. You never know what he'll do. You never know. And in real time, he's not obligated to tell us. Well, Theophilus needed to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. He needed evidence to, to, to bolster his wavering faith. And so Luke gives it to him. And this genealogy is an important piece. He wants him to say, Theophilus, your faith is reasonable. It's rational, believing in Jesus. Because Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He is the son of Adam. He is the Messiah. Believe on him. Put your faith and trust in him. Anchor your soul to him and don't waver. And I think that's Luke's message to you and me today as well. If you're here today and you're thinking about this, you don't know who Jesus Christ is, or you've, you're still contemplating whether to give him your life, whether to submit to his rule, you need to understand to make that choice is not an act of blind faith. It's an act of rational choice with a ton of evidence. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the King of kings. And he is the one who will return and rule on David's throne forever. And the Bible tells us that one day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. We will all submit to Christ. The only question is, will it be while there's still time or will it be when it's too late? Trust in Christ today. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come to this difficult text that has a bunch of names. Some confusing details of trying to sort out lineage and such. But we believe these things are not, they're not unimportant because you preserved them in your word for us. And Lord Jesus, they do show us that you have their credentials to be the Messiah. You indeed are a son of David through your mom's side and through Joseph's side. That you meet all the qualifications to fulfill every Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah. And you're the only one who meets those qualifications. You are indeed the King of Kings. You are indeed the Lord of Lords. You are the, the one who's come to crush the head of Satan to defeat death on our behalf, to make right what went wrong in Adam. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves. To pay for our own sin. You paid for it on the cross where you were crucified and buried for my lies, for my disobedience, for my unfaithfulness, for every sin I've ever committed. You did that not because you were obligated to, but because you loved me. Because of that, I'm eternally grateful. So many in the room this morning, Lord, have the same story. But for others, they're still like Theophilus, that, that, that doubt. You're just not sure if it's true. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, their eyes would be opened you would show them the truth. You are indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords who's died for them, that they might be free of sin, that they might have eternal life, that when their vapor of a life is done here, they'll have an eternal home with you, the perfect paradise of heaven. 
thank you for all that you've done for us. We honor you this morning. We worship you. We offer these prayers in your holy name. Amen.